We are waiting now more than 48 hours. So where did you start and where are you going? Manchester. Manchester. But I, yes, but I go to Germany. And no. where are you from? From Croatia. Okay. What's in your van? I have biscuits. Have you had food? Yes, on the airport they give you half a bottle of water and one more bread. But I don't need the food. I want to go home. Hello and welcome back to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And I have to say, the global economy has had a pretty busy Christmas and New Year. You heard there a frustrated lorry driver caught up in the chaos that hit Britain's ports when France suddenly closed its borders to all UK traffic just days before Christmas. The closures were due to Covid fears, not Brexit. But with a trade deal between the EU and Britain at that point still not signed, the frantic scenes on the coast felt like they might be a sneak preview to what would happen when Britain fully left the European Union at the start of this year. Our UK economy reporter Lizzie Burden went to Dover before Christmas and has been keeping an eye on what's been happening at the port since January 1st. We have her report in a minute, along with a chat with senior UK economist Dan Hansen about the new third national lockdown in the UK and what it will do to the economy. That's another thing that's happened in the past few days. But first, I thought we should pay a call on a corner of America, which this week held the fate of Joe Biden's presidency in its hands, Georgia. Mike Sasso is our US real economy reporter based in Atlanta, Georgia. Some of you will remember he's given us a picture of what's happening in his state a few times since the pandemic began. Mike, um, thanks for joining us again. I mean, you've been right at the centre of the action this week um, with those metropolitan Atlanta votes apparently making quite a big difference uh, to the chances of the two Democrats who seem to have become U.S. senators this week, giving control of the Senate to President Biden's side. What's the past few days been like for you? Yeah, yeah, it's been a little bit crazy to see Georgia at the at the center of everything. Uh, there's been a huge effort among canvassers. Uh, these are activists and whatnot calling different populations. Uh, I didn't get a ton of calls. Uh, however, my wife, uh, who is a, a Latina, um, she's of Cuban heritage, she was just hit up constantly, uh, almost every day by different groups. I believe the latest estimate was something like $500 million in commercial spent, which is an extraordinary amount in just in Georgia, just on these uh, runoff races. I have a little eight-year-old daughter. Uh, she could she could remember each of the four candidates. She could remember the taglines. Um, there's a candidate, uh, a Democratic candidate, Raphael Warnock, who was sort of branded by his opponent as radical, quote, radical liberal Raphael Warnock. My, that is burnished into my daughter's brain at this point. They tried to combat that all of those relentless attacks on Warnock by having just pictures of him and footage of him with puppies. I thought was a very sort of straightforward uh, response to that. And um, you you wrote a piece uh, for us talking about the relative strengths that Georgia has had in in coming through the pandemic and and perhaps also getting quite a lot of benefit from the from the government support there's been. 
Sure. Well, as we talked about uh, several months ago earlier in the pandemic, uh, Georgia opened relatively early from lockdown. This was, I believe we opened in late May, uh, reopened the economy to some to some criticism. Uh, most businesses in, in many businesses opened here in, in May and June, which is before many other states around the United States. Uh, there's a lot of theory that that helped Georgia. There has been an unusual and probably good uh, phenomenon around the country of uh, a growth in entrepreneurship, a surprising surge in small startups during this pandemic. And a lot of that got started in Georgia and the South. And it was a little bit slower to get going in some of the northeastern and western states. And some people attribute that to the reopening of the economy and in also our unemployment rate in Georgia has generally been better. We're at 5.7% unemployment, which is a full point less than the national economy, which is at 6.7% unemployment. So people are doing a relatively better, uh, at least job-wise, than, than they are elsewhere. And I noticed that you had some some of the industries that the state's dependent on have done relatively well. I think well, carpets are doing well and poultry. Is that right? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more familiar with uh, carpent, uh, um, carpets and uh, that industry, which is kind of up in the northwestern part of the state, Dalton, uh, which is where, uh, interesting, where President Trump came and campaigned the other day. Um, that's that's benefiting largely from the huge boom in, in, in housing. Uh, Atlanta, the, 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 the Federal Reserve's uh, keeping a check and actually helping to lower interest rates has had a big effect on the housing market. Uh, and that it's creating a great, uh, just, just a boom, particularly in mortgage refinancing. So there's just just people refinancing just all over, including myself. I refinanced. Uh, almost all of my friends have refinanced their mortgages lately. It's creating a, a tremendous have and have not scenario in Georgia. Um, we, we took a look at some of the counties around Atlanta and in a primarily white affluent county uh, on the north side of Atlanta called Forsyth County. You compare that to a primarily black uh, county on the south side of Atlanta called Clayton County. The white affluent county, the, the rate of refinancing is 10 times that of the primarily black county on the south side of Atlanta, despite relatively the same population in each county. So it tells you, you know, affluent uh, white collar and particularly white communities are benefiting to a much greater extent than blue collar and minority communities from all of this. Well, it's been such a persistent theme, and it, I would imagine it did feed into some of this much I mean, high high turnout uh, among those parts of the population in this election. If the, the Democrats have now got control uh, over the Senate, it's a very, very narrow control, so they're not going to be able to do everything um, they might want to do. But it does look like they will be able to support more fiscal stimulus. That's certainly what investors are now betting on. Do you think the that desire for more fiscal support uh, fed into this election result at all, or was it just about other things in the end? I, I think it, I, you know I think we'll have to look at some exit polling and whatnot to tell for sure. I do think it was interesting that a day before the election, this is on Monday, uh, President elect uh, Biden. Uh, stumped for the two Democratic candidates and did make a very strong point that if Georgians elect the two Democratic candidates, 
there would be these additional $2,000 stimulus checks sent to Americans. Uh, that's a lot of money for, you know, uh, particularly some low income and, and just frankly, a lot of people. Uh, and could the promise of $2,000 stimulus checks uh, have motivated some people? Yeah, absolutely. I, I could I could see it. So I, I do think it probably had some some effect. Mike Sasso, thanks so much. I hope you're not you're going to get relief now from all those ads for a while. Well, certainly my daughter is happy that the uh, the commercials have ended. That's that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Take care. We've heard again and again in this pandemic about that unequal impact of the crisis on different people and places. One reporter who's consistently brought that home to us in the US is Sean Donnan. He did it again recently with a magisterial report for Business Week that came out on almost the last day of 2020. Here's Sean now with just a taste of what he uncovered. It's easy to forget, but an economy is really just a group of people. So if you want to understand the state of the U.S. economy right now, you could just start by talking to one of those people, like Donna Swangler. Donna is 42. She has three kids, ages 7 to 16. She and her husband, Brian, live in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia. And right now, at the start of 2021, they are struggling because of this pandemic, which in 2020 really knocked them, like the U.S. economy, off what had been a pretty good course, as she made clear when we first spoke in early December. I have three young kids at home, so yeah. basically I'm here all day with them and he works when he can and you know of course we just do what we have to to try to stay healthy because if he can't work then we're (laughs) we will lose everything in march last year as the u.s locked down in response to the first wave of the pandemic donna lost her job scanning paper records it was something she had been able to do from home while her youngest child was still getting ready to start school until all of us went home and the courts and other offices she worked for stopped generating that paperwork she was able to get unemployment benefits but the 195 dollars a week she was getting ran out in mid-december and though congress passed a new 900 billion dollar rescue over the holidays that extends her benefits it's still unclear when she will start actually receiving them again meanwhile her husband brian who has a small contracting business doing landscaping home renovations and the like is seeing his work dry up again as covid 19 cases surge The Swanglers exhausted the few savings they had getting through last year. And as Congress was debating a rescue plan over the holidays, Donna was increasingly nervous about what lay ahead. There's no savings left now. So it all depends on what my husband brings in. And if we can't make rent and food and we're going to start falling behind. And with that, (laughs) no eviction, I'm I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Because uh, we have nowhere to go if we leave here. Like, there is, we don't have a family member we could go crash with them, you know, being the five of us. There's, there would be nowhere for us to go. Which means right now the Swanglers, like the U.S. economy, are in a month to month scramble to get through 2021. Uh, how are you guys going to get through the winter? Um, uh, <laughs> we're. We don't know. (laughs) 
just after the new year, Donna and I exchanged texts. The five-member family on January 5th received the $600 ahead stimulus payment negotiated by Congress over the holidays. The $3,000 was welcome, but it went quickly to covering bills the family had left over from December and the rent on their home for January, Donna says. But that is a long way from where Donna expected to be a year ago which is a point that seems to occasionally get lost in discussions about the U.S. economy and the recovery still underway. A year ago, Donna Swangler was getting ready to go back to work full-time as a medical office assistant, something she had done before having kids. The idea was to earn more money so that she and her husband could start building up more of an economic cushion. She hasn't abandoned the idea, but like many things in America and Europe right now, those plans are on hold my resume all, you know, updated and everything. Um, so I was really hoping to start doing that, but, you know, beginning of March was when everything yeah. started falling apart, so. So it feels like, I guess the... One step forward, two steps back. That's a common story in the U.S., where things like the shift to virtual schools have hit many people, and particularly women, hard. A little over 57% of Americans were working in November, which was the lowest level seen since 1983. The lowest, that is, if you don't count even worse months of 2020 that came before that. The start of vaccinations means there's promise ahead, of course. But the U.S. is going to spend much of 2021 playing catch-up, which is one reason that the Biden administration and others have already started talking about the need for another rescue package. That doesn't mean Donna Swangler thinks she's getting back on the path she and her husband were planning on anytime soon. Not until the kids are back at school, at least. I don't think it's a possibility this year because school is so uncertain up till the end of the year. I can't be calling out of work, especially at a job in a medical office, you know, for three days in a row because my kids have to be out of school. Which means that for much of 2021, Donna Swangler's plan is to hang in there and survive week to week, month to month, hoping that someday before long, she and her family and the rest of the U.S. economy can put a pandemic behind them and get back on track. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Donnan. There's a famous UK newspaper headline which is supposed to have run in the 1950s. Heavy fog in the channel. Continent cut off. Whether or not it was actually published, it's been used many times over the years to symbolise the UK's somewhat distorted view of Europe. And I thought of it again just before Christmas, when fear of the new strain of COVID-19 sweeping across England prompted France to block all traffic from the UK for 48 hours, just days before Britain cut itself off from the main economic arrangements underpinning the European Union. Lizzie Burden, our UK economy reporter, went to Dover to see the chaos for herself. Confusion, desperation and frustration. Those were the sounds of angry truckers clashing with police at a roundabout near Dover, Britain's busiest port. There were two arrests outside the disused airfield where drivers were sent for a Covid test, which would be their ticket across the French border into mainland Europe. 
they'd been stuck after a 48-hour blockade imposed after a new strain of the virus was found in the UK. Tensions had mounted as thousands of hauliers queued on the M20, the highway to Dover, from where ferries crossed to the French port of Calais. A stroll down the Central Reserve revealed license plate after license plate on vehicles from Poland, Romania, Hungary, almost none from the UK. Behind the wheels were men craving home comforts in time for the holidays, especially clean toilets. I spoke to some of the drivers on December 23rd. We are waiting now more than 48 hours. So where did you start and where are you going? Manchester. Manchester? I, yes, but I go to Germany. And no. where are you from? From Croatia. Okay. What's in your van? I have biscuits. Is there a roof? Yes, of course, it's food. I come here to unload, load and go back. When I come here, they close the border. The conditions, have you had food? Yes, on the airport, they give you half a bottle of water and one more bread. But I don't need the food, I want to go home. Christmas? Of course, yeah. you understand. And now I can make it, we'll have Christmas in, I don't know where. Do you have children waiting for you? Two, one from six years old and one is three. And they are crying at home. They're waiting for us, but what can we do? And are you worried about coronavirus? Yes, I know we can no joke with that, but we are truck drivers. We don't have a, a contact with anybody. As testing gathered pace, the backlog was cleared. A Brexit trade deal aimed at avoiding exactly this type of chaos at the border was signed on Christmas Eve. And by 11pm on New Year's Eve, when the UK left the European Union's Single Market and Customs Union, it was eerily quiet at Dover. Yet there are still signs that the double whammy of Brexit and Covid could take their toll on trade. Real-time data shows the rate of freight firms rejecting contracts to take cargo from France into the UK tripled from the third quarter. Shane Brennan is the chief executive of the Cold Chain Federation, which represents businesses along the food supply chain in the UK. I asked him whether no queues were good news and what all this means for supermarkets. I don't think we can tell anything from the trade that we've experienced so far. Trade on New Year's Day was sort of 10% of what it would be on a normal trading day. Most of the members I've spoken to over the last 48 hours have not tried to send a vehicle through the border yet. And most of them are looking at sending stuff starting on, say, Thursday or Friday of this week. Certain types of fresh fruit and vegetables do rely on coming into the country just in time, so there could be a situation where they're in short supply in the coming weeks. There is, however, another dynamic here, which is we're going into a COVID lockdown. So normal trade flows will be distorted by that, and that'll be more of an important factor than the actual Brexit distortions in trade volumes and trade requirements in the coming days and weeks. So it could be that actually the Brexit disruption is masked by that bigger COVID disruption. For most Britons, the main question is when things will get back to normal. It will take us through to the spring before we can have any confidence of what normal now looks like. Because of the lots of paperwork requirements are going to be trial and error for some weeks yet. And just because they are moving smoothly today does not mean they'll be moving smoothly tomorrow. That's just the reality of it. And we're going to have to just strap in for the ride.
Well, our senior UK economist, Dan Hansen, is here to take stock of what Brexit and now this very serious intensification of the pandemic means for the UK economy. Uh, Dan, uh, Brexit first. Uh, We did have those real worries going into the new year uh, about not having a deal and having further chaos on the borders. Um, we've, We've dodged that bullet Um, But we still don't really have complete clarity on what a burden this is going to be on businesses going forward. How is it looking for you? Yeah, it's really difficult to know. I mean, as you say, the um, avoiding the no deal was was really good news. And that was sort of a nice, nice Christmas present for us all. But to be honest, the... What we've seen so far, at least, is that the the disruption hasn't hasn't really been there. These big queues at, at the at Dover and in Calais, they they haven't come they haven't come to pass yet. I mean, in terms of the economic impact in in the first quarter, it, it's extremely difficult to calibrate this sort of shock. I mean, one thing we've we've drawn on is what the Bank of England have done. They said back in November that disruption could knock about a percentage point off growth in the first quarter of the year. Now, as I say, given what we've seen, that sounds like it might potentially be too much. Um, and the disruption, you you would hope if it was going to happen, it would happen in the first quarter and then dissipate as firms got used to the new trading arangements. But the broader point with Brexit, and I think it's this is where it's really different from COVID, is that it's a slow burn shock. It's not this big, sharp shock that happens as we've, as we've seen with COVID. And on numerous occasions over the past 12 months, it, it's this slow burn and that drag on from lower trade flows and also from lower migration flows as well because of the tighter migration regime will, will drag the economy's potential growth rate down. Yes, and I think, I mean, it's going to be, it's also journalistically going to be a challenge just to keep tabs on those, as you say, really micro changes that will unfold over time. Bloomberg's obviously been doing a lot of that. I'm also, I remember there was an extremely good financial times piece actually over Christmas, just talking about one sector, the wine industry, and how uh, if you have extremely valuable wine, you're now going to, in theory, have to open one of the bottles in order to establish exactly the the chemical breakdown of the contents to to meet the requirements of of going into Europe, which of course, if you've got a bottle of wine that's worth £70,000, you really don't want to do. Um, So I think it's it's those little things that perhaps... uh, we won't, as you say, we won't know enough about uh, for quite for quite some time. Um, quite big things have happened even since the first of January. We've now gone into this third national lockdown in the UK in response to a, what looks like an extremely grave situation uh, that the National Health Service is facing with this enormous jump in um, COVID. Uh, cases. How has that changed your outlook for the UK economy over the next few months? Um, we think the economy will contract by four and a half percent in the first quarter. Um, and the, that compares to a fall of about one percent in the fourth quarter. And a big reason why we think the contraction will be bigger this quarter than it was at the end of last year was is because, I should say, the schools have closed. And that's likely to have a, a greater economic impact, not only through the direct impact on GDP from uh, through education output, um, fewer fewer children in schools will just reduce education output directly, but also it has a labour supply impact. So uh, parents will have to stay at home, look after their children, and that obviously impacts the economy as well. If schools hadn't been closed, we would have expected a fall in output in the first quarter of 2%. We're saying that output will 
fall by four and a half percent. Obviously, there's supposed to be a difference in this lockdown is that it really is supposed to be the last one because we have, in theory, an end in sight not so long away uh, with potentially a large proportion of the vulnerable population vaccinated within a month or two. You know, how dependent is the economy now on that rapid rollout of the vaccines and how much can we really believe the government in the in the promises in the promises for for how many people will be vaccinated so quickly i mean it's entirely dependent i mean boris um has linked the the uh ending of the lockdown or the easing of the lockdown to the rollout of the vaccine and the government being successful at getting those two million shots a week into people's arms. So if if that falls short of their their very high, very very high expectation, then the lockdown is going to last longer. Um, and I think there is a big risk of that. And uh, there are a few other things as well. There, I think the fact that it this version of the virus is more transmiss- transmissible that creates a risk that the lockdown needs to be tightened further to ensure that. And the infection rates come down. We have often been thinking about the UK, where it ranks. Uh, the Prime Minister is often talking about us being well-beating in various things. We certainly we seem to be well-beating in, in our ability to develop new strains of the virus and our ability to, to catch it. But I did notice that your forecasts uh, were showing the UK, UK actually potentially growing faster than many other countries this year, having done worse than other advanced economies last year. Um, you might have thought with the faster, much faster pace of vaccine rollout than on the continent, uh, where it's been quite slow, um, that that forecast was looking OK. But given what's happened now, do you think that the UK will still look quite economically weak relative to its partners at the end of this year? Well, it, it's a story of two kind of football phrase. It's a story of two halves, I think. You've got you've got this this initial period um, at the start of this year, and it's not really the half, I see it's probably up to spring into early summer, where it's going to be very difficult for the economy. But I still don't think that precludes the economy benefiting a lot once the vaccine does come online. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty about when that that will be the that will happen. But in the second half of the year, we've got, we've got a pretty strong bounce back um, and the economy picking up. I mean, if you look at annual growth rates, just to just to say it's that the, the weak start to the year will mean the, the growth rate is lowered quite a lot. The annual growth rate looks a lot weaker, but actually that means a lot of it is pushed into 2022. So if you look at our numbers, you're looking, instead of looking at about a 6% growth rate in 2021, you're now looking at something closer to 4%. But then you shift into 2022 and you've got something closer to 7.5% instead of something around 55 6%. Obviously, all of that assumes that there isn't much scarring from all of this, that the economy can in fact bounce back, that fiscal policy does come in and protect incomes and ensure that unemployment doesn't spike and that firms don't go bankrupt. But of course, the big risk is the more of these lockdowns you have, the bigger risk that scarring does occur and the bankruptcies do occur and it, it, the economy does struggle then to bounce. But as things stand, we do think the second half of the year will be a lot better than the first. Dan Hansen, thank you so much. I think we'll probably, in a few months' time, when a lot of that fiscal support is about to evaporate and we are hopefully looking at a rapid recovery, I'm sure we'll come back to to check in with you. But thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on all things economic. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics by following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Mike Sasso, Sean Donnan, Lizzie Burden, and Dan Hansen. Lucy Meekin is the executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. 